Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White and a very happy new year to you all. I hope you all enjoyed a very happy Christmas, didn't eat too many mince pies, got all the presents you desired and most importantly had plenty of rest and managed to switch off from the news. Because 2024 is going to be quite some year for politics in the UK and around the world. In fact, it could be the most important year in a very long time. The general election is no more than a year away. The Conservatives are still a long way behind in the polls, but a year is a very long time in politics. So over the next 40 minutes or so, we're going to look ahead to what we know is going to happen and after dusting down the trusty IFG crystal ball, explore what we think might happen in 2024. Joining me as we look ahead to the next 12 months are a duo of the finest IFG soothsayers, Jill Rutter and Joe Owen. Hi, Hannah. Hello. And I'm delighted to be joined by Sam Coates, Deputy Political Editor at Sky News and co-presenter of the Politics at Jack and Sam's podcast. Hi, Sam. Hello there. Now, your podcast, as all listeners will definitely already know, comes out every Sunday and is about predicting what might happen in the week ahead. So presumably you are going to be in tip-top shape for predicting what's going to happen this year. What's the best call you've got right so far? Oh, gosh. Uh, That James Cleverley might end up being Home Secretary and that that day... And the main measures in the autumn statement, we got fairly bang on and that Rishi Sunak was planning a statement on HS2 at autumn conference. But before it descends into a boast fest, the most interesting things are the things that you get wrong because you get to pick over why they're wrong. And that often tells you a really interesting story about what's going on at the heart of government. But have you found you've now got a hotline for everybody calling up to give you their top tips for the week ahead? It has open doors. It's, it's really interesting. You know, there have been a couple of big speeches by political leaders which didn't feature in the podcast because they didn't tell us, and they sort of agreed to tell us. And that, and so if they tell us, then we tell everybody else. They don't have to tell everybody else. So it's a it's fabulous great shortcut. public service. <laughs> <laughs> Except for our families who have to endure us working all day, every Sunday. Okay, well, let's get going to think about the year ahead. Hanging over the entire year will be the prospect of a general election. Will it be May or autumn or maybe even next January? We'll come on to that later. But let's begin where we ended. An almighty row about immigration, a nail-biting vote in the Commons, an outbreak of Brexit-style conservative infighting, and rumours that Rishi Sunak's premiership was in jeopardy. Sam, what comes next? Well, the big decision that the government made at the end of last year after winning actually pretty comprehensively the first of several votes on Rishi Sunak's emergency legislation to get the planes off the ground to Rwanda was to play it long. So they decided that they weren't going to return to this issue until we think the third week of January. So what's going on right now is that the government machine, the government whips, government ministers are taking Tory MPs who've just come off Christmas, perhaps maybe not spending so much time with the whips, but spending a lot of time looking at their WhatsApps and, you know, just hanging out with their friends who agree with them. And it's just trying to slightly bring them back into the fold ahead of the next set of votes. Because the fundamentals of this debate have not changed however happy a Christmas everybody had. On the one side, the bulk of the Conservative Party believes in a piece of legislation, which is rightly the toughest legislation that we've ever had, which disapplies some bits of the UK courts using international law and stops the courts from using reasons why um, uh, appeals should be granted against people going to Rwanda. But there is a minority, a minority that who believe in numbers that could defeat the government, that 
it doesn't go far enough. And because of the application of international law, particularly the European Convention on Human Rights, that this bill won't work and shouldn't proceed in its current form. The question is, how big really is that group? And are they prepared to cause the political chaos that will be accompanied ultimately with bringing down this bill when the government doesn't do what they want? Joel, do you think that the government's calculation is going to be that the right wing of the party are more willing to bring down the bill and potentially by mistake also the government than the more centrist one nation group and therefore they are more likely to move in the direction of those who want to toughen up the bill? It's quite interesting because I mean, how does the government toughen up the bill? It basically puts down or accepts amendments as the bill's going through the committee of the whole house, which you could do, and they've said they might agree those. The problem is, do those amendments actually make it onto the face of the bill? Is the government prepared to whip on those amendments? Now, it's sort of one of the truisms of British politics and has been for years that the sort of characteristic of Tory wets is that they are wet. And that's why they've been sort of pushed around by the right wing of the party, even though they may be preponderant in the party and they can point to their 100 members. So I think it's really interesting to see what amendments actually come through. Do they really represent a sort of line that can't be crossed? Because ultimately, what you can really see is this bill emerges from that committee of the whole House stage in pretty similar form to the form now. And then basically, what does the Prime Minister do? He says to his party, it's this bill or no bill. And actually, if you want any chance that we're going to get flights taken off for Rwanda, you have to go with this bill, and then we're going to try and get it through the House of Lords. It's interesting to cast forward, though, for the the full year ahead. So there's sort of four challenges that the Prime Minister has to overcome uh, if he wants to get, he wants to sort of be able to say he's met his pledge of stopping the votes. First of all, he has to survive amendments in the Commons without blowing up the bill the deal with Rwanda if it gets too toughened, too toughened up or the party. He then needs to get it through the Lords without it getting snared up, completely delayed. He then, if it can get through the Lords in time, needs to probably get it through a battle with the courts. You could see some challenges being brought on the bill as a whole. You could see challenges being brought on individual cases before the planes take off. And then he's got to prove that Rwanda actually is the deterrent that everyone's promised it will be. And at all of those stages, there's jeopardy for the prime minister and his backbenchers are going to know whether he's double or quits on it. And if it looks like it's falling down at any of those stages, is he going to go tougher? Are we going to see anything in the manifesto on ECHR? Or is he going to have to try and pivot and say, maybe it's not Rwanda and it's something else? So I think even if we get through this month, through the commons, there's still various points of jeopardy where his backbenchers are going to want to say, are you double or quits on this thing? Look, the Prime Minister's going to just endlessly say, my bill or Bill Cash, and hope it's the former. (laughs) (laughs) But I think Joe's right that the really interesting thing is how this shapes into the manifestos, because it's quite interesting. One or two of the interventions that we saw in the debate into December were saying that we can't do the European Convention for Human Rights now because it's not in the manifesto. We can't get it through. And I think that is a really interesting battle for is this going to become a big issue. Based on what Joe said, actually, one of the better options for the Prime Minister is the bill has just got onto the statute book. He can claim that after an election, he could be implementing this bill and this is going to stop the boats. Labour has no policy on this, but you haven't actually had the sort of proof of concept or the risk for the Prime Minister of non-proof of concept that it does, doesn't do enough to take out the court or that actually the deterrent effect, which, of course, Home Office Permanent Secretary said 
is definitely not proven. That's why Home Office is spending all this money under direction is actually proved to be right. He has also got the choice of sending off his new foreign and home secretaries around the world to try and get some more deals because actually the thing that's been really mm. successful for the government on illegal, mig- on illegal migration has been the Albania deal, which there has been a massive reduction mm. in Albanians crossing from being one of the biggest groups to not. And so whether or not he uses this year to also try and get some other strings to his stop the boat's bow, mm. rather than having everything hanging on this one bit of legislation and this one deal with Rwanda that, as you say, is totally unproven in terms of deterrent effect. But Joe, the problem for the Prime Minister is Albania was the real outlier of country that you could plausibly say is safe that had a lot of incoming migrants. When you look at the list of the other places, Afghanistan, Syria, Iran, Eric, I mean, they're not that many possibilities for doing deals with governments that you could plausibly say we're sending people back to somewhere safe, are we? But there might be others that are open for arrangements similar to the Rwanda deal. Okay, let's wind the clock back a bit to what happened at the start of last year. Joe, we began 2023 with big speeches from Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer setting out their pledges and their missions. Are we going to hear more about those, do you think, or are we going to see new speeches with new pledges and new priorities? So I think both leaders will be under pressure to have new speeches with new priorities and pledges, but for slightly different reasons. I do think we probably won't see much of them until after the dust has settled in the votes in the Commons, but I think for Sunak, you speak to a lot of people around the Conservative Party, they say he still needs to give the sort of compelling vision for why vote Conservative what will you get by 2030? Starmer, on the other hand, has done lots of his vision diagnosis, but not much on policy priorities. I think Sunak has done less on the kind of big vision priorities. He did a bit at Autumn Statement, but it felt more like that narrative was a justification for hanging together four policies that he wanted to announce that sort of didn't quite cohere and there wasn't a sort of strong political strategy behind it. So I think there'll be pressure on him to sort of set out the why Sunak, what do you get by 2030? For Starmer, I think he's done lots of the kind of what's broken, what's my vision, national renewal, but they doesn't really have a sort of handful of big retail policies that most voters can point to. He's did the one and a half million new homes at party conference. But other than that, there's stuff, you know, great British energy. I'm not sure a kind of quango is definitely going to land on the, the doorstep particularly well. So I think for Sunak, it's going to be set out your vision. And I think for Starmer, it's going to be give us a handful of more retail policies that we can we can use on the doorstep in the run-up to the election. Sam, so we've already talked about the government's Stop the Boats pledge, but how are the other ones working out? Not very well. Just before Christmas, you had some negative GDP figures on the economy. And I know from talking to people just before Christmas in the Treasury, they are worried that actually the first few months of the year, there is a chance we could enter a recession. And so that would be a problematic for the growth pledge. As you say, stop the boats has had that effect. He has met the inflation pledge that he set, but he has not met his own government's inflation target, which is a considerably lower and um, prices have not gone down by any stretch of the imagination. People are hurting. And so I think sort of across the package, it's it's problematic to say, well, it's a mixed report for the five pledges I've already had and only one has been met and even that 
you know, is complicated. Here are my five next ones. But I think that's what he's got to do. And he needs to put out a vision, uh, as you're saying, for conservatism by 2030. And that's just not easy. And 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 he's cross about this, is what I understand. He sort of stomps around a bit going, you said if I said these pledges and then they came true, then, then I'd go up in the polls. And, you know, the last poll of 2023 had him at his lowest ever ratings, his ratings matching the ratings of the Conservative Party. He was always meant to be more popular than the Conservative Party. So there is no doubt it's 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 tricky. And um, I think this is just part of the problematic picture for the Tories. Joe, do you agree with Joe that the task for Starmer now is to fill in more policy detail? Yes, I think, I mean, the missions, I thought it was quite noticeable that when we wrote an end-of-year quiz uh, with a lot of political journalists, not Sam, I have to say, one of the quiz questions is name Starmer's five missions. People really struggled. There was a <laughs> audible size from a lot of the journalists. It was I was around, it's a great fun game. I did that on air to Mary Cray, the ex-Labour MP. She got them all wrong. But I mean, I couldn't really remember myself, but I didn't admit that at the time. I was delighted. It was one of the few questions I could answer. They, what they, are they? <laughs> not now. <laughs> <laughs> they, are, they are quite unmemorable. And they're also quite a mixed bag. I mean, you know, the fastest growing economy in the G7 can sort of understand that, though, why you want to send yourself a relative target. Who knows? The other ones, I mean, sort of, you know, the clean energy super, it's quite narrow, but it's also quite difficult to deliver. Does it really, as Joe was saying, sort of, sell people on the doorstep. The opportunity one, what does that mean? You'll need to see some more stuff on law and order under the safety one, things like that. So I think at the moment, you're not going to put them on a mug and buy that mug with that much enthusiasm. I think the interesting question then is actually, you know, I think there is a question for Labour is how do these present some sort of new organising principle for the way, way they want to govern? I think Coming back to Rishi Sunak, though, and you may be coming on to this, Hannah, I think the really interesting thing that we're going to see from now onwards, this is when the Treasury is starting to work out what it's going to put in the budget. Uh, you know, they usually have sort of, you know, start thinking about that in January. We have potential new forecasts from the OBR, which could be bring good news, but could equally bring, you know, less fiscal headroom than the Chancellor gave away. And the chance will be under massive pressure on what to do to improve the offering. I think a lot on the conservative backbenchers will be hoping they'll be hoping that Jeremy Hunt really, really can make it a sort of very merry spring for them. What are you expecting to see in the budget, Sam? Well, the the, the sort of big problem for the budget is the next cut, which we saw in the autumn statement. Is that actually going to be the largest tax cut that we're going to get this side of the election? Is there going to be enough? to use the horrible language, uh, headroom, is the economy going to perform well enough? Because they spent a good deal of money, I think it was £6 billion a year, on that next cut. And it's not clear that there's going to be anything like that amount. And the problem with having a next cut, it's like the world's greatest stealth tax cut. We always talk about national insurance being a stealth tax rise when it's when it goes up for the NHS or social care and all the rest of it. But when, you, but when you're performatively cutting it, the problem is if you're cutting it to get some credit, because you've got an election coming up. The, the danger is that people don't notice, not least when it's offset by personal insurance thresholds, dragging more people into higher rates of tax. So, so if your pay packet doesn't go up and it's not that tax rate that you particularly understand, then then was it worth the money if you don't get the political credit? So they're grappling a little bit with that. But they're also just confronted with what happened if that £13 billion 
pound headroom figure doesn't increase, it's a 50-50 chance it goes up or, mm-hmm. or down. They're looking at that and going, mm, don't know what to do yet. Now, uh, governments do have a tendency of, of, of finding ways of tweaking some things to give them a little bit more headroom. Uh, uh, although there is an independent office of budget responsibility, there are just a few dials around the edges that you can tweak. But my goodness, it might look like the autumn statement was bigger than the final budget before an election. And that is a problematic place. For There's a, to be. a big sofa in the Treasury that you can usually rummage around the back of and find something for uh, someone. But I do. it is really interesting because last autumn, the Prime Minister did spend quite a lot of money there was 20 billion at the autumn statement which hasn't given him a massive bounce really to sam's point and then there was 40 billion pounds at party conference on uh, although much further down the line and slightly more imaginary but a 40 billion pound transport announcement that was entirely overshadowed by the fact that he'd scrapped hs2 in manchester so i think going into the sort of budget they'll want to know that they get a much bigger polling reward for the money that they spend than they possibly have so far, although we might see some of that stuff on the the sort of tax cuts and the next cut start to feed through in the next few weeks and months. Although politically, at least you can remember what happened at Tory conference. I can't even remember what happened at Labour conference. Aside from the mean, glitter. And I, apart from the glitter, I, and I sort of mean that in all seriousness, and of course there were big global tragic events going on at the same time. But even if there hadn't been, I'm not sure that I necessarily would have remembered very much that that happened. So when you do focus groups, it strikes me that there is a divide between people who do see Rishi Sunak as doing something in difficult circumstances, uh, and there's and and the, the the Keir Starmer profile in people's minds is much woollier. It doesn't have the, the enthusiasm. It does have that uncertainty about flip flopping. There isn't a, a, a confidence that he's strong and that, for instance, would re, would would resist the left if they came along if, if Keir Starmer was in government. And I think wherever this comes out, I wouldn't assume that it's that bad for the government because the contrast that they can present between doing and 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 inaction and flip floppery, I think, is not is not is not always as unhelpful as it appears when the media just focuses on an event and judges it on its own terms. When you judge it against what the other side is doing, it's it, it, sometimes that, that that yields very different opinions when, in the round. And of course, Joe, the other ongoing process through this year is going to be the COVID inquiry. You spent quite a lot of time last year watching uh, evidence sessions. What's going to happen next? So we'll get a report from the COVID inquiry and the report will be their first report about module one, which is the the evidence they did uh, much earlier last year, which is on preparations for the pandemic. So the kind of political peril, if you like, for the government in that might be references to the impact of austerity or Brexit preparations on how ready the state was. So we'll get that report from the inquiry. We don't know what kind of tone those inquiry reports are going to take yet. We've obviously had the kind of quite adversarial and newsy evidence sessions on the kind of with big politicians at the back end of last year. But it might be that the reports are quite a lot drier than that and won't have any sort of big problematic stories for the government in it. We're not going to see anything on module two, which was the module in which the prime minister, the former prime minister and various former cabinet and current cabinet ministers gave evidence. We're not going to see that until after the election, but we will start to have more evidence sessions in the first half of this year for the module that's focused particularly on health and the impact on health systems of the pandemic. So we might see more of Matt Hancock, more conversations about the impact of Sounds very happy. <laughs> I mean, anything that keeps him 
off the telly <laughs> is a is a good is a good thing. He's sort of become Nigel Farage's mini me that he's sort of <laughs> out compete to be on the box more. Are you expecting to see more of Nigel Farage? Yes. Look, the really, really interesting conversation that's going on below the surface is not about Nigel Farage and reform, but it's about Nigel Farage and the, and the Conservative Party. Cast your mind back to the Conservative conference in late September, early October, and there he was roaming the floor. Why was he there? Because he had a press pass as a presenter on GB News. But, but you did have this sense of him being fated by the activists, and you just know, you just know that if the party relented on the question of membership, maybe because they felt under pressure, then it would not be hard for him to potentially get a seat. And, and, and like, if there was any activist vote, he'd come top, right? This makeup of Conservative membership, if the YouGov Tory member polls and the Conservative Home uh, membership surveys are anything like correct. And one of the things that's been going on with the Tory party is that the sort of right flank of the Tory party, which has been a little bit to the right of where... Uh, conservative parties are in other European parties, but but there's been quite a hard division in our first past the post system. So we've kept out the rest. So there's always been in my political lifetime a UKIP, or now it's a reform, or it was a Brexit party, and and, and a lot of anger between the two, and they, they they a lot of clarity that they're not part of the same political force. But as the Conservatives kind of emerge in this post-Brexit world, that barrier, particularly because of the mm. new forms of media, is starting to break down. And, and it's in that environment that you could see Nigel Farage, if someone opened the door, he would dash through. And the prize is not that hard for him once he's swimming in that pool. And that horrifies MPs. But the Conservative Party is going through a little bit of what Labour went through in 2015, 2016. And there is a clash between the MP view in the majority who know the dangers of what happens if you if you if you pivot to the right and you don't keep some of these people out, and the and the activists for whom he's just the person saying what they want to hear, who they're not being told, for whom the solutions from their own leadership are nowhere near as adequate or frankly as attractive. Yes, it was noticeable, I thought, at the Conservative Party conference that the question of should Nigel Farage join again was asked at so many fringe meetings. You've got a minister on the panel. There are should we let Farage back? Tom and Jacob Rees-Mogg, oh, we yeah. saw uh, on a panel that you know, our colleague Emma Norris was on, was asked that. Emma fortunately wasn't. But then he said, and if you're a sort of Tory leader, you'd be watching your back if he came back, clearly giving a hint that you know, in the Rees-Mogg pantheon, Farage was a potentially plausible leader. And of course, that went down very well with the genuine Tory members in the audience as opposed to the sort of mass ranks of lobbyists and NGOs who also make up a lot of the audience there. So I think it's it's really interesting to have a look at what people have described as a sort of effect of members coming in from UKIP, which certainly quite a lot of people thought was going on in their constituency parties in the wake of the Brexit vote and the Conservatives in 2019 becoming so obviously the party of leave. I have a theory, which is that politics is Nigel Farage's second love. And if somebody had given him a big TV job in the 80s or 90s, the course of British history would be very different. I think he should have just held that punt and got his golf scholarship to the States, in which case he might be Ryder Cup captain. But, uh... <laughs> Alternative plausible futures for Nigel Farage. Let's turn to the civil service, Jill. How hard will it be for them to carry on delivering on the government's agenda with all this election fever swirling around? Does it get harder and harder? It does get a bit harder. I mean, you inevitably, your thoughts start moving on to how long will these people 
be around a bit of what will it, what might it mean for me of course they'll sort of try and do do their job but also at the moment i think that people will be seeing limits on what the government realistically can do how much the outside groups really want to engage with government policy you'd always be asked your question is this going to happen i think some interesting question about should we really be making commitments will we sort of look as though we've rushed these appointments through this spending through before an election and that's the sort of thing that's really difficult for the top of um, government departments to navigate because they need to be serving the government of the day while it's the government of the day. They need to be conscious of whatever the polls say, the government might return. But also, they would also be aware that potentially there's a change of government in the air and that could mean a radical change, of course. I was press secretary at the Treasury in 1996-7 when we knew a change was coming. It was blindingly obvious, even though you could say that policy is working relatively well, but you could just tell that unless something miraculous from the point of view of government was going to happen, and there were squabbles about the future direction of the Conservative Party going on even then as people knew they were facing defeat, and that probably preoccupied more time than actually doing the day job. Yeah. So you have two things. You have the run-up to an election, which is always basically results in a bit of a hiatus, but you have the absolutely incredible level of Tory infighting. I, I Just when that period just before Christmas with the, the kind of votes on migration was going, I asked a very senior civil servant, like, what's it like? And they replied by telling me that it felt a little bit like the meme. And I don't know, I don't know, Hannah, how familiar you are with the chicken shop meme. But basically, it's um, where a massive fight breaks out in a chicken shop. And they thought that the civil service was like the one customer in the corner calmly trying to eat their meal while chairs fly over their head. That was, <laughs> I'm sure you're aware of I'm that. I'm definitely aware of that, yep. yeah. And that's sort of what it feels like. So you've got you've got the normal pre-election process layered on with this, with, with this chaos. But there's something else, something I find incredible, right? Just before Christmas, it, 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 things felt a bit unstable. And, and, and I, I have no doubt that either migration or something else will, will mean things are unstable again. And, you know, at time of talking, it is not clear that there is leadership in the civil service. So if there is political crisis, if there is proper political crisis, and it is not clear that the government commands the confidence of, the, of, of parliament, which is what defeat would mean, then all of a sudden lots of things come in play. Elections, leaderships, you, you know, questions for very, very profound uh, constitutional questions. What do the four permanent secretaries are doing the job share to replace Simon Case while he's off duty? Do they have a vote? You know, do they take turns? Is it, if it's a constitutional crisis on Tuesday, is it the woman from uh, DCLG that's going to that's gonna call the shots? It's bonkers. It's bonkers that you've got no political leadership and no official leadership at the same time. Frankly, they should be ashamed of themselves. I think it's definitely the case that the interim model uh, that looked like it was cooked up quite quickly uh, and not necessarily with the eye on it lasting a long time is creaking. I think it's really... <laughs> a more measured assessment yeah. from Joanne. <laughs> <laughs> Former civil servant. Um, it is really difficult because ultimately at points like that, exactly as Sam says, you want the one person that can walk through the link door from the cabinet office mm -hmm. into number 10, in to see the prime minister, to then have a private conversation with them about what the options are. And at the moment, it's not clear who in the sort of three or four or five, depending on who you speak to at different times, different people involved feel like that's their job. And 
they also have very big other jobs to continue delivering. So I think relatively soon we're going to need to hear a hopefully some good news about the health of the current cabinet secretary. But if he's not coming back anytime soon, then either there needs to be a proper interim appointed as an individual who fills that role, or they need to run the process to find a new cabinet secretary. I don't think the kind of the current parcel out bits of the job and hope that it lasts mm. approach can continue. There's an appalling precedent, and this is very sad, and it involves individual tragedy, and I'm sorry to talk about it, but um, the the way that the illness of Jeremy Hayward was handled mm. struck me as, as, as the wrong way to go about this. He basically covered it up. He had a whiteboard mm. with fake meetings when he was going for hospital mm. treatment at a point where Brexit was really unstable, and then suddenly, late on in the process, had to sort of come clean about what was going on. Mm. You can't run a country like this. I understand individual health issues are important and sensitive. You cannot run a country like this. And it seems to me nobody, possibly with the exception of the Institute of Government, is able to tell the civil service, you're making a gigantic hash of this. Get a grip. Get a leader. Start sorting out your own problems. I mean, I think... I think the analysis is right that there's a big vacuum, and particularly when you look at the fact that Joe's just told us that the module we're about to have of the COVID inquiries about health and Chris Wormold, the permanent secretary at the Department of Health and Social Care, is the most senior permanent secretary and one of those four who are doing this. I think there's a really interesting question about the extent to which Simon Case already hold below the waterline and sinking really would have been able to exercise the sort of authority you would want a cabinet secretary to be able to do it. But at least he had the nominal position to do it, even if he didn't actually have the personal command, perhaps, or authority and credibility to really perform that well. But I think there are real problems in running a selection process now. What would that look like? Who would apply if you think that there's about to be a change of government? Would you do it in cooperation with the opposition, as you know, in an election period, you're supposed to do any critical public appointments that you actually have to make in that period. We're not in an election period now. It could be a year away, as uh, we may come on to speculate. So I think it's a really, really difficult thing, but they have to do better than they're doing now. I mean, you know, someone to put their hand up and say, we're doing this job on an interim basis. Normally, what you do. When you have an acting permanent secretary, is you appoint someone who's not going to be a candidate. Maybe you find somebody who's left the civil service, get them to come back for an interim period. He's got some experience of that. You know, a lot of former permanent secretaries, former cabinet secretaries around might do that. But I think it's really difficult it's got to have someone who's got the confidence of the prime minister, has got the confidence of the civil service to be able to do that job. Yeah, you know, every day is going to throw up difficult propriety issues as you get close to an election. You've got ministers who are already bristling against civil servants getting in their way. That is going to be a dreadful time to manage, I think, particularly when you have a government that sees its back against the wall. If it thought it was sailing into another term, it wouldn't matter nearly so much. That's unanimous. Get a grip. Joe, Jill mentioned the E-word there, so I think we're going to have to go there and talk about the election. Obviously, the arguments about when it may be held are well rehearsed, at least uh, within these four walls. Do you think we are going to be seeing an election in May? I don't think we're going to see an election 
in May. One of the big, most compelling arguments for May, I was told by someone involved in the Conservative Party, was the local elections and basically avoiding the risk that a result that doesn't go your way in the local elections just derails you and you lose all sorts of momentum. But I still think that's very soon. There's a quite a big gap in the polls to make up before you'd feel confident firing the starting pistol on an election. And so I think it will be later. I also don't think it will be in January at the last possible moment. I can understand the sort of desire to wait and see if something turns up, if the economy starts turning in the government's favour. But I think by the time you get to uh, autumn this year, the sort of fever pitch around when it's going to be will be so high. And everyone will know that a January election means campaigning over Christmas. It will just look a bit like the government might be scared, I think, if you run it that late, given it will require campaigning over Christmas. So my guess in the office sweepstake is December. Uh, I think that because I think the autumn is most likely, but the revealed preference of the prime minister, I think when you looked at the reshuffle that was promised last year, was to always just hold on a little bit more. So the reshuffle was first promised before the summer, then it was immediately after the summer, then it was before conference, then it was going to be before the autumn statement. And in the end, the only reason it happened I think was because the Suella Braverman situation just became unsustainable. So I think the Prime Minister will want to hold on, want to wait for another data point to see if something turns up. But I think by the time you get to sort of October, November, it will be really hard to sort of go much longer. Sam, I mean, that's the sort of, might be the plan, but presumably there's a decent chance that if Labour slips up at some point and there seems to be a bit of a dip in their poll lead, the government decide to just go for it? God, this is the most impossible question in British politics at the moment. I, and I do not have an answer and I am not betting. I can see arguments and reasons why it's all sorts of things. God, the prospect of a December election. Uh, it was horrible last time. It'll be horrible again. But look, there's arguments that because there's there's is Rishi Sunak in control of the timing or is he not? And that's and, and even that I can't completely tell you because I can't quite see my way through the whole migration route that we started talking off. You know, there is a path where the migration legislation dies in the Lords and they decide to go to the country not long after that. There there is a there is a path where at a later stage of the migration bill, the twenty nine Tory rebels who abstained convert their position into voting against it. And Rishi Sunak is defeated on his flagship legislation because the party wants to push him to the right. He goes, I, I respect their view, but it's, I can't do it. And he quits. And then they have to find somewhere else. And then that new person wants to come in and go long, right? So, so if it's not in his control, then there's one set of scenarios. If it is in control, there are, you know, there, there's sort of slip sliding all over the place. Yes, there's May. Uh, one argument that's the two arguments for May, in addition to local elections that I've heard in the last week are. One, mortgages, with every month that passes, people have to remortgage and then have left money left over because of interest rates. Uh, and two, do it sooner because there'll be more dignity. You know you're going to lose, just just get on with it. It's it's going to be painful, it's going to be awful, let's not, let's not leave it and drag it out. So there are those arguments, but maybe the economy's in a better state in the autumn. Also, you'll have more time to do spending, you know, piling money into constituencies before the regulated period is a great favourite backdoor trick of funding for uh, for British politics. That's always quite good too. So that's that. that that's sort of, I'm everywhere and nowhere on this question. Jill, how much of an impact do you think foreign policy is going to have on British politics this year? 
you'd normally say hardly any because I think that's generally the rule of thumb is that nothing does that. But I think at the moment, I mean, there's obviously big question marks over the war in Ukraine, which seems to be sort of going nowhere. Will that impinge enormously? I think mostly that's affected British politics through its second round effects on things like energy prices and clearly risks around if energy prices start going in the wrong direction. That's really a crucial vehicle for the Prime Minister to deliver his inflation goal that they've come down from their peaks. In terms of Israel-Gaza, conflict still going on. It's quite interesting when you talk, and very interesting Sam's view on this, but you talk to some people, they say it is having quite a significant effect on Labour in London, that it is making some seats there much more vulnerable than they expected. So I think that's quite an interesting thing to see how that plays out and whether indeed that plays out at all in the London mayoral elections later this year. So I think that could do that. And that's difficult because Keir Starmer has taken a position that is probably more pro-Israel than many in his party would have liked to see and a bit of a battleground there about his authority and stuff like that. Will that affect the generality of voters? I don't think so. And the final one is relations with the EU, uh, Brexit or whatever. I think Rishi Sunak may attempt to weaponize Brexit in a slightly sort of desperate, he's going to reverse Brexit, why people in the Labour Party will be quite frustrated that Keir Starmer doesn't want to reverse Brexit enough with his commitment to keep the UK out of the single market and the customs union. But I think it's probably in both parties' interests not to make too much of that. Rishi Sunak is doing a sort of stealth improvement of relations with the EU at the back end of last year. We saw quite an interesting sort of bilateral mobility deal with the French on school groups, which was quite an interesting thing that had been in the wind a bit of a time, I think a bit of a quid pro quo for some action on migration and stuff like that. Other countries might come in. The EU has got a whole bunch of its own problems. You've got European Parliament elections later this year. I mean, really bad news for Reform Party and the Greens that they won't have that chance to mobilise for those elections. That's one of the things that gave the Brexit Party enormous momentum in 2019, as well as you know, potentially funding those fringe parties. Uh, but it'd be very interesting to see what happens there in terms of shifts to the right in Europe, where I think a lot of those anti-migration parties look to have potential to do very well. But I think this is going to be predominantly a domestic policy election. Most elections are fought on the economy, and I wouldn't have thought this is going to be a big exception. Something like between 1.3 and 1.5 billion people go to the polls next year, if you include mm. Britain, which we think is almost certain. America, European Parliament elections, Indian elections. And I think that that inevitably has an, an effect. If, if we have an autumn British general election, the ricochet effect mm. with the American elections, mm. but, you know, in September, you'll get those presidential debates. You know, you've seen Donald Trump already talk about Rishi Sudak in relation to his net zero stuff. To what effect does that have? But I think the really big thing that I'm fascinated in is, is the pull effect of the more anti-migration right-wing parties in Europe. Th there's a kernel of something very interesting going on with the developing relationship between Maloney and Sunak, right? You know, a party on the distinctively right of, of, of Italian politics at some point would have been cast as fringe, but now it's Britain's alliance. Now think what would happen if the AFD triumph in Germany, mm. 
now think what happens, you know, when you put together the constellation of quite a lot of Eastern European countries, there have been some exceptions, mm. but a lot of them drifting rightwards. And, and, and some of them are quite anti-EU, particularly the AFD. And you've got a situation where you can see a sort of confluence of interest between parts of the mm. Tory party and parts of this kind of anti-migration, anti-EU right that's emerging in the EU. And that has effects in two directions, mm. has effects on British politics and the kind of what do we do about all the improving relations mm. with the EU. But it also it, it also undermines the EU, and and I think there's a really interesting mm. question for for you know on the 31st of December 2024, you know what do we EU relations look like after a year of potentially trauma? Because the European Commission sort of doesn't like all these right wing parties. Yeah. They're quite explicit about it. They they sort of they want to keep it's like but you're the you're the civil service of Europe. I'm afraid if the voters of Europe choose you, it's not for you to so to like. There, there is a sort of decaying there of a relationship between governments and the, and the massive central bureaucracy to ends, I, I know not what, but it doesn't feel like healthy relations. Yeah. Well, we're already seeing Auburn effectively holding the sort of EU, sort of almost blackmailing them over support for Ukraine and sort of rolling back on the frozen funds. We've yet to see where the Dutch government ends up and things like that. So I think it's really interesting things in Europe, even though they probably won't be massively reported here. Now, there's always going to be events, things we don't predict. So I'm going to ask you each to suggest something that might happen next year that nobody's thought of yet. Sam? Well, I haven't thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, the Pope dies. And because he's stacked the conclave with liberal bishops, you end up with a more liberal pope causing a schism with the American church that don't like uh, the new head of the Catholic church. You, want, you wanted something new, something Very different? There you go. Joe? I think England win the Euros, poll bounce for the government as everyone feels very good about the victory and the prime minister calls the election. Very good. He'll be, he'll be liking that one. Joe? It's maybe more hoped for rather than the reverse, but Trump doesn't make it as the Republican presidential candidate. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you to Joe Owen, Joe Rutter, and especially to Sam Coates. Thanks for joining us and good luck with this year's predictions. And thank you to everyone who listened in. You can find all Inside Briefing episodes and all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. Do subscribe and listen throughout the year. Remember to head to our website for all our content. There's going to be a lot of it over the coming months. And while you're there, do sign up to watch our Government 2024 conference, a brilliant day of panel discussions, speeches, and a live podcast featuring a great lineup, including Wes Streeting, Sajid Javid, Stephen Bush, Per Ainsley, Adam Fleming, Georgia Gould, Anita Boateng, Paul Johnson, Anand Menon, and many more. Happy New Year, everyone. Buckle up for 2024.